We know that somewhere in the world, someone downloaded this podcast, but we don't know anything about you. The folks who support this show would love to know just a little bit about who is listening. If you have two minutes, it really does only take two minutes. Help us make this show an even better experience for you by telling us more about yourself. Just go to ListenerQ, L-I-S-T-E-N-E-R-Q.com forward slash pull up and take the short survey. You can also give us direct feedback on the show, which we would love to hear. And as a thank you, you'll be entered in a drawing for a $100 Amazon gift certificate. Two minutes. ListenerQ.com slash pull up. That's ListenerQ.com slash pull up. LeBron did say he is like a fine wine getting better with age. So I guess you would agree then. At this point in his life, the game is moving like the Matrix. Everything's in slow motion. He's Neo and he's taking the pill. MVP. LeBron, Harden. I give it to Harden. Where does Kawhi play next year? I mean, this is a very sticky situation right now in San Antonio. I'm just going to put it like this. He's from California. A lot of cap space out there in California. Welcome to the first official episode of Pull Up with CJ McCollum and Jordan Schultz. I'm excited to be here. I'm really looking forward to sharing some insights with you guys. But before I get started, I have to introduce a good friend of mine, Jordan Schultz. CJ, it is a real pleasure to be here. You know, I'm excited to talk basketball. I'm excited to talk wine. I feel like this is an opportunity for you to really show off the world that you're not just a hooper, my man. Yeah, I think that's the biggest thing people need to understand is that we have a life outside of basketball. Obviously, with the podcast, we will discuss what's going on around the NBA, various topics, including playoffs, potential draft prospects, uh, free agency, things of that nature. Obviously, we'll have to discuss the Blazers since I do play guard for the uh, Portland Trail Blazers. We'll discuss the latest Pinot Noir I'm drinking, TV shows, (laughs) book recommendations, I feel like this is going to be awesome. I'm honestly really looking forward to this. And for those of you that don't know, we are recording this on Monday. I'm in Dallas. Jordan's in New York, right? I'm actually in Seattle right now, man. Oh, you're in Seattle. I'm by coastal CJ. By coastal So Jordan's in Seattle. Uh, we're going to be watching the uh, national championship game tonight as well. So we'll have to talk about that next week. But without further ado, let's get started. So CJ, you guys just clinched your fifth playoff berth in five years. I guess, what have you learned from this year in the process of now you're not just hunting, but you're being one of the hunted as you try to get home court advantage in the West and go out and make a run? I think we're just trying to keep the same mindset uh, each year, consistently trying to get better, improving within, you know, trying to focus on ourselves and not really worrying about you know, other teams or outside noises or distractions. And you know, we've we've gotten better. We've improved. Obviously, we had some lulls earlier on in the season. You know, expectations, you know, within were, were very high. You know, we felt like we wanted to make the playoffs. We felt like we wanted to put ourselves in a position to potentially host games, you know, in the playoffs. And, you know, five years in, I've learned a lot from, you know, DMPs being in a suit to, you know, going through injuries to backing up certain guys and being able to, you know, pick apart their games, learn from them, study from them, you know, playing with L.A., playing with Nico. Obviously, I've been with Dame, you know, this entire time, but I've learned a lot. And, you know, each year I've been able to apply different things to my game. And uh, from an experience standpoint, I think playing the playoffs the previous four seasons, although it was very limited in my first two seasons, uh, I'm looking forward to, you know, year five at 26 years old. So your first two years, you had a combined three starts and then (laughs) you haven't missed a start since. So you talk about DMPs. What have you learned from that and how do you apply it now? Is it a motivating factor for you? knowing that not only do you not want to play, but you want to be a star. 
Yeah, I mean, I always keep that in the back of my mind, understanding where I come from and what I've come from and had to overcome over the course of my career, whether that be injuries in college or, you know, just being drafted as a lottery pick to a team that wins 53 games in the first season. Right. Uh, that doesn't happen very often. Usually as a lottery pick, you're, you're going to a team who, who needs you to perform, and whether that means you're winning games or not. You're getting a lot of minutes consistently able to play through mistakes. And early on, you know, the room for error was, was low. And we were competing for, you know, a top three, top four seed in the Western Conference. We had the the best or second best record uh, in the NBA up until Christmas. And I was behind a lot of veteran guys. So I just learned a lot, you know, paid attention, tried to soak it up and understanding, you know, the process of working each day, trying to build towards something. And now, you know, as a starter and a guy who's gone through those different types of things, I still have an appreciation of, you know, everybody because I've played every role. You know, I've been the go-to guy. I've been a role player. And I've been a guy who shows up to the arena understanding that I'm not going to play. You and I talked about that a few weeks ago. I I remember you said that your first couple years in the league, not only were your practices like games, but it was the pregame workouts where you would get to the facility or the arena a couple hours before, and that was your process. So I guess for me, it's like, was that something you enjoyed when you were going to the arena knowing that you probably weren't going to play that night, but that you had to do a crazy workout an hour and a half, two hours before? Was that enjoyable or no? There's nothing enjoyable about showing up to the arena. You know, your girl's in town or you got family in town, <laughs> and you know you're not going to play, and they know you're not going to play, and this is, you know, the game you've played your entire life, you love it. It's your job. Uh, you're considered one of the, the best 400 players in the world. You're considered one of the best 10 players in the world coming out of the draft, you know, based on your class. Right. And, and you feel like you should be out there. You feel like you're good enough to play, and you're just not playing. And it's frustrating, and it, it's tough. It's very humbling. But you can do one of two things. You can quit, or you can keep going and try to control the controllables. And that's kind of what I did. You know, I worked hard and showed up to the gym as early as possible. You know, I, I worked very closely with Nate Tibbetts early on in my career, you know, taking taxis, you know, doing the small things, working very closely. Uh, our strength and conditioning staff, you know, Coach Vanderpool was always in my ear, you know, just about understanding the game, you know, trying to continue to break down film, being more thought driven, you know, in terms of creativity offensively, trying to trying to keep players involved, trying to balance those things and balance personalities. And, you know, fast forward, I'm glad I went through all those things because, you know, I'm a better person because of it. The Western Conference is about as good as it gets. See, we we understand that. And right now there's basically seven teams vying for five spots. And there's only four games that separate teams four through ten. So, you know, we're basically talking about San Antonio, OKC, Utah, Minnesota, New Orleans, Denver, and the Clippers. With the Spurs, big picture here, Kawhi Leonard, if he comes back and he's healthy, or at least 90%, how does that change San Antonio? Like, does that make them a legitimate contender or just a team to be feared? I definitely think that makes them a legitimate contender. You know, we're talking about a guy who's been in the running for MVP the last few years, one of the best two-way right. players there is in the NBA. Just you know, rewinding, looking back at their series against the Golden State Warriors, the impact he had in that game, you know, they were up 20-plus points and then, you know, Zaza Zaza at him and ended up taking him out the game. And that kind of changed the, the entire dynamic of their team in this series. So I think with a healthy Kawhi, uh, the Spurs were forced to be reckoned with. Even without him, you know, their, their veteran leadership, their uh, depth, and obviously with Pop as a coach, you're always in the game. So the Thunder are different in that they have basically two superstars. You know, if you look at Russ's numbers, they're essentially the exact same this year. His shooting numbers may be a little bit down, but you know, still a very high usage Still a guy that essentially is averaging a triple-double. How have they changed the Thunder 
now that Paul George and to an extent Melo being there, like how much different are they on both ends? Their offense is a lot different. Obviously, there's less pick and rolls for Russ and more pick and rolls for PG. They run a a pretty open offense to where PG has a lot of different options to where he can go baseline, he can go off pin downs, he can go off flares. They kind of move him around a lot in, in, in kind of a floppy set with choices. And then their second unit, I think, is is a little bit more improved uh, with the development of Grant. Obviously, they, they made the addition of, of Felton, and they brought in some other guys who uh, can can do some different things that they may not have had in, in past years. But I think the biggest difference, obviously, is you got Melo, who plays the four. You know, he's able to get a lot of trail threes. He shoots a lot of jumpers. He's able to get some isolation situations and pick and rolls with him and Russ. Then you have PG, who's able to kind of anchor that second unit, you know, gets a lot of pick and rolls, a lot of isolation situations, and comes off a lot of screens. So that Russ's usage rate may be high, but not as high as it was uh, last year. Well, then you transition to Utah, and it's like, if, if people don't watch the Jazz play, I'm not sure they appreciate <laughs> not only their how good they are, but just how disciplined they are. I mean, Donovan Mitchell has had a fantastic year. Whether or not he wins Rookie of the Year, we'll, we'll see, but he, he's been terrific. Do you feel like Utah is a more frustrating team to play in th- than maybe other guys, even though they don't have all the personnel? I mean, like obviously Donovan's there, but they don't have a multitude of all-stars or maybe star-caliber players. It's really Donovan running the show, Rudy on the other end, then a bunch of ancillary good players, but not stars. Yeah, I, I like Utah's team. I think they're a very good team. They're they're well coached by Quinn Snyder. They execute. I think they lead the lead uh, in passes, and they they share the ball, share the sugar, as we like to say. Um, they have a a very very good understanding of roles. You know, like like you said before, Donovan Mitchell comes in as a rookie, and they essentially give him the keys to the offense, allow him to make plays. And um, the biggest part about all that is that he accepts the role. He lives up to the hype. He performs well in clutch situations, and his teammates, you know, uplift him. You know, they, they don't seem to hate on him. You know, he's getting a lot of attention when they dunk contests. You know, people kind of talking about his rise to stardom. And there doesn't seem to be any jealousy you know, within that organization and that team. So I think they're a sleeper. You know, they're going to they're gonna be very good in the future, obviously. You know, they're competing for a playoff spot right now and playing particularly well. Uh, Mitchell obviously being in the running for rookie of the year. I like the Jazz team, their team dynamic. Defensively, they have length, they have size. Ingles is knocking down threes. Uh, Gobert's protecting the rim. So uh, they give you a lot of different looks, and with the addition of Crowder, uh, I think they're a pretty good team. Their whole thing, right, is that they feel as if defense travels and not fouling travels. So do you feel a conscious effort of them? Because they always are low in fouls, team fouls. Is it different? to play them be, as a result like because they're they're so consistent on that end of the floor? Yeah, it's definitely a, a low possession game against them. You know, they kind of slow things down. They use a lot of the shot clock. They run their offense all the way through until the last possible right. second, whether that means making an extra pass or uh, running a pick and roll as the, as the shot clock continues to expire. But I, I think they're a very good team. As I said before, it's hard to breathe in Utah for starters, so I know a lot of teams probably do not want to go play there. It's hard to breathe, and they have a pretty good home court advantage. Do you think it's fair what Ben Simmons said when he said, you know, Donovan Mitchell's a scorer <laughs> and essentially that he was a lot more than that? Because I, I think it's nuts. Yeah, I think it was a stretch, but he had a legitimate point. His point is that he does a little bit of everything for his team, which is true. He, he's a, I'd say 
Simmons is a better distributor than uh, Donovan Mitchell. His vision is is off the charts, right. but right. but Mitchell does a little bit of everything as well. He scores the ball, obviously, and that's what he's known for. You know, he makes the highlight plays. He's you know dunking on guys, going down the lane. Has a little bit of uh, Russell Westbrook in him in terms of explosiveness around the rim, but he also distributes. You know, he makes plays for others. Uh, they they kind of give him the the keys. He, he's been getting better at that that skip pass. You know, being able to hit the tag roller on the weak side. You know, just kind of breaking down some film on him as we prepare for different potential opponents. You know, he does a great job of passing the ball as well. I think it's a little underrated because of his scoring. Okay. So Denver and New Orleans, both of them have dominant bigs in different ways. Uh, Jokic is a guy that can facilitate, can can handle the ball. Davis can do that too, but more of a score. Two-part question. A, have you noticed a big difference in Anthony Davis without Boogie? And B, is Jokic at the point in his career – where he can lead Denver to a playoff series win, like is he that dominant offensively? To a playoff series win, or a, uh, I mean, it just really no, no, a series win, a series, series win. win. That's tough. I think he's going to need help. Obviously, right. he's a very good player, able to do a lot of different things, can distribute, you know, can can keep others involved, can orchestrate an offense, initiate an offense, and score on his own. But uh, he's going to need other players to step up. I think they have the pieces. They just have to consist. Yeah, Gary Harris. Gary Harris is a, a very good player. Will Barton. Well, shout out to my homie Will Barton. He's a he's an outstanding player as Buckets. well. Well, I think it's yeah. just more about them at the defensive end. If they can defend, then okay. they always give themselves a chance. And then you look at New Orleans. AD was a problem with Boogie. Without Boogie, man, he's even more of a handful because he's the focal point of the offense and. You've seen the numbers. He was 40 and 15, 40 and 12, 37, 13, six blocks. Like he's, he's stuffing the stat sheet as he did you know, throughout the entire season. But now you know, you're kind of seeing the total arsenal. Do you think that Denver reminds you at all of the old Blazer teams when you guys were, you know, essentially you're like second or third year in the league because you guys weren't guarding at the same <laughs> level, but you were scoring a lot? <laughs> No, honestly. My second year in the league, we won, uh, I don't know, 51, 52 games, and I think we were 11th in defensive rating. But my third year, we didn't defend the greatest. We weren't okay. the best defensive team. Kind of had to kind of figure things out, learning you know, each other. Obviously, that was my first year as a full-time starter, so just continuing Started, to try yeah. to understand the schemes, understand you know the principles and uh, defensive emphasis uh, going into each game. But as we continue to get older and mature and figure out the NBA, uh, you tend to get better. So we talked about the Spurs, you know, they're unsure essentially if Kawhi is coming back. Popovich says, I don't know when he's going to feel. He and his group are going to feel like they're ready to go. In your estimation, in a nutshell, what what exactly is going on in San Antonio between Kawhi, Popovich, the entire organization? Yeah, this is a tough situation. And you know me, I don't like to really discuss the state of other franchises or or talk about other teams, but... In this case, it's been a trending topic around the league. I don't really know what's going on behind closed doors, but it seems like, you know, Kawhi is trying to make sure he's fully healthy, you know, physically and mentally. I know the there's rumors that the Spurs doctors actually cleared him, but he hired uh, independent doctors on his own in New York, so he's kind of been flying back and forth and getting checked out by them. So, I think it's it's an interesting storyline. One of the stranger things I've seen in in my lifetime, you know, especially with the Spurs, just because they run such a tight ship and everything always seems to be in place, but in this case, I don't really know what's going on. I wish him nothing but the best and hope he can return healthy. And I just I really don't know. This is an interesting head-scratcher. You know what? When I look at that, it, I see a team that is, for the first time under Greg Popovich, 
they have an identity crisis because a guy like Kawhi, you never would anticipate him being a headline grabber in a negative way. He's a quiet guy. He's more to himself. He's a superstar. If anything, you would have maybe expected it to be somebody else. But when Tony Parker comes out and basically says, you know, we had a closed-door meeting, and I've played through similar injuries, I felt like that was a tipping point. So for me, when I see, you know, whether or not Kawhi plays this year, I, I see a team that is at least for the first time entertaining the idea that he would not be there next year. You know? I think you're right. They have to consider life without him because he could leave as a free agent or if he doesn't agree to sign the extension, they potentially could trade him uh, exactly in the in the yeah. upcoming year or you know this June during the draft. So you just never know what's going to happen, but with that being said, he is one of the best players in the NBA, still a, still an all-star MVP caliber player. And it's it's yet to be determined whether he'll play in the, in the remaining games or up in the playoffs. Okay, another bizarre situation, the 76ers. They're on a 10-game winning streak, uh, at least through Monday. In 2015, see, they won 10 games total. So I look at it like not only did they are they the byproduct of tanking and obviously the process and all of these different factors, but they're, they, they've now become a legitimate playoff team and future contender, I, I would imagine. So when you look at them right now, Philadelphia, what did you think of A, Markel Fultz coming back, and then B, the fact that Joel Embiid is out for a month? How does that impact their future? Yeah, first, Fultz, I like his game a lot. I've been a fan of him since he was in high school. He's from the DMV, and, and Coach Vanderpool is also from the DMV, so he's been telling us about him for a little while now. We actually got to check him out uh, during the Les Schwab uh, a few years ago, and you could just kind of see the explosiveness and how easy the game came to him before he ended up going to Washington and being drafted by the Sixers. But he's got good vision. He's got explosiveness. He's got a variety of finish moves around the basket. And I think as he continues to grow, mature, understand the NBA game, and understand uh, the coach's system, I think he'll he'll be more comfortable. But with that being said, his return led to the exit of JoJo, and that changes their team dynamic a lot. I know they, they have a 10-game winning streak right now as of Monday. Uh, they're playing extremely well. Ben Simmons is is doing his thing, getting triple doubles and dropping no-look passes and, and, and reverse dunks and things of that nature. But Without him, it changes their team completely. The offense, the defense, who they run, who they run their offense and defense through, and from for a seven-game playoff series, you need to be able to score in the half court. And when you have an interior presence like him, it makes that easy. When you don't have him, it makes it that much more difficult to execute in the half court. Is that why Portland can give so many teams fits because you guys can score in the half court? Like I would say opportunistically that you guys run and that you're effective in the, in the up-tempo game because you guys have so many shooters. But that whole flow system seems to give even the really good defensive teams issues in the half court. Yeah, I think our continuity offense and the way we move the ball, set flare screens, and it's just a constant movement with equal opportunity allows us to be deadly. And then we have a, a good interior presence with Nurk. We got some bigs who can shoot the basketball really well. We got Bigs who can finish, you know, off the pick and roll. So that allows us to play different styles. Obviously, you play a team like the Warriors, it's run and gun. But you got to be able to execute in half court. You play against the Houston Rockets, it's run and gun. But you have to be able to execute in half court down the stretch and be able to pick apart certain matchups. And I think that's the difference between the good teams and the elite teams, being able to execute in half court and then being able to get stops down the stretch. So you mentioned Nurk. Last year, he gets hurt. Three years ago, Portland, four out of the five starters are gone. You know, we talk a lot about the Sixers 
they went a completely different way because in 2012, Philly actually had a better record than the Blazers. They won 34, <laughs> Portland won 33. But they went full tank mode, and you guys went, well, we're going to keep winning. And so I just wonder, for like, what are some of the benefits of the process of Portland, your process of not only are we not going to tank, but we're okay with the fact that we're going to win 50 and we're good with it because this is going to allow us to build a winning culture. Yeah, I think I, our situation was interesting. You know, like I went through it firsthand. You know, being a lottery pick, drafted to a team who's supposed to be average or underwhelming, to winning fifty plus games right afterwards, to Lamarcus Aldridge's departure, to you know, the expectations were low. We were supposed to win, I don't know, nineteen, twenty games on the Vegas odds. We we're supposed to be terrible, and then we win forty four games. So we kind of exceeded expectations and put us in a position where they were like, okay. These guys are kind of good, you know. What's the ceiling? What's the basement? How can they improve? You know, we make the we make some additions. You know, you know, adding in Nurk, you know, getting Mo Harkless, getting Shabazz Napier, and some of those guys. We have that internal development, and next thing you know, we're in the cusp of winning fifty games, three and a half, four years later. So it's it's interesting how things worked out. Obviously, some teams decide to tank, and I think it works in in some teams' favor at times, and sometimes it doesn't. In the Sixers' case. You know, you had to trust the process, as as JoJo would say, and look what they've done. I, I never would have expected them to, to make this type of transformation this fast, honestly. But you got to credit their internal development as well. You got obviously drafting the right pieces, and then you know having some uh, free agent additions come in. You know, JJ Redick, and then you you strike gold with uh, Covington as well. I just wonder if we can compare tanking to. It's almost like in order for that to work, or on the flip side, in order for what Portland has done to work, which is to win and build a winning culture, you have to have complete buy-in from the players, the staff, front office, ownership. And you could almost compare it to like a Fortune 500 company. If if a GM is only worried about winning right now, then he might not be all in toward you know a certain future. He, he might not want to tank. But if a guy believes he has full autonomy, maybe Sam Hinkie believed that, then he can have the opportunity to build through the draft and tank. So I guess my long-winded question is, how important have, at least in Portland's case, has it been to have the full buy-in, the chain of command, where everybody's focused on winning and we know that we're going to build a contender this way and not through losing and having you know lottery pick every year? Well, it's been awesome to, to be a part of it just because of the fact that they put an emphasis on development. You know, we get a few weeks right. off in the summer and we're in the gym working out. We're continuing to try to figure out ways to improve, working on our diets, individual workouts, film study, summer league. We have these little mini camps. We, we took uh, a couple voyages together as a team where we go to San Diego, do team bonding on our own and try to figure out ways to improve and collectively, you know, gain that, that team chemistry because that's crucial and extremely important as the season progresses. You're spending more time with your teammates, with the coaching staff than you are with your family and loved ones. So you have to be able to really understand each other, be on the same wavelength. And, you know, late in games, make eye contact. You should know exactly what the other person is thinking and be able to execute it. And I think the fact that our our team does such a great job of putting emphasis on being a player-first organization, we've seen that, you know, from the staff to to the front offices to everybody. You know, the emphasis on us, you know, figuring out ways to to improve our team, figuring out ways to keep us – uh, in, in great shape, figuring out ways to to win games, and whether that be acquiring free agents, whether that be selecting the right draft picks, or developing us internally, they've done a great job to my eyes throughout my career. 
Without naming names, though, is that different than maybe other organizations or players you have talked to who feel like <laughs> there's not that all-in commitment? Absolutely. I think each organization is different, and some teams, you know, take different approaches, obviously, as we've seen, you know, with some teams being able to figure out ways to get the first pick in the draft or the second pick in the draft year in and year out. Okay. Uh, I have some friends who've been out there on, on certain teams where it wasn't a, a player-first organization, but, you know, I'm thankful to be where I'm at today, and you can't knock other organizations for ways they run their, their franchises, but I'm just happy to be a part of the Portland Trailblazers. So, CJ, I've looked around. The most impressive stat I've ever maybe seen on LeBron is this. He has more 50-point games, 11 in his career, than single-digit scoring games, 8. <laughs> That's the most unbelievable. Can you even fathom that? No, I can't fathom that. I just scored like 8 points a week ago. but uh, <laughs> <laughs> you, didn't have, you didn't play a lot of minutes, right? <laughs> Yeah, like three for 19. But um, just looking at, you know, his career, how he's developed, being from Northeast Ohio, three, shout out to the 330, you know what I'm saying? Being from there, <laughs> understanding how methodical he is with his approach to his diet, to his recovery, to hiring the right people around him to kind of figure out ways to improve his body. You have to argue, you know, that he's arguably the greatest player of all time. It's hard because I'm from the era. I'm from Ohio. I played against Braun. I haven't played against Jordan. So you could go either way, obviously. But I think the real issue here is that he's in his 15th year he's on pace to play 82 games for the first time in his career he averaged a triple double in february he's doing things that he hasn't done in the quote unquote prime of his life like this is this is insane well i know you love wine as do i we'll have a fun wine segment every week on the show but lebron did say he is like a fine wine getting better with age (laughs) so i guess you would agree then i absolutely agree with with him getting better with age Looking at the numbers. But why? What what, what has he done? What has he done? How how has he done it? How does it get better? Let's start with the dunk he had against us. Um, That was probably the dunk dunk of his career in his 15th season. And looking at the miles he has, you know, seven straight finals. I think they added up the amount of playoff games he's played in, and it's equivalent to 82 games. So the amount of playoff games he's played in is equal to another full season. That's ridiculous. Right. That in itself is insane. Before we played him, they said he was shooting 78% in the restricted area. 78% in the restricted area. That is ridiculous. Left hand, right hand. He has all the finishes. And I think at this point in his life, the game is moving like the Matrix. Everything's in slow motion. He's Neo and he's taking the pill. <laughs> I think that's just the, the point he's at. <laughs> I like you know, that. He's a career high in assists per game. He's doing a lot of things that he hasn't done in his entire career at 33 years old, which is ridiculous. Can you feel him when you're out there, you know, thinking the game maybe differently than he did, I don't know, in Miami? Or is that is that a stretch? It might be a stretch because I always say Miami Braun was the best Braun. You know, Miami Braun was, right. you know, angry, dunking on people. That's when you got to see LeBron unleashed, shooting 40 from three. What did you guys say, 40.6 from three in 2012? Right, yeah. Yeah, so that was yeah. when you got to see everything kind of come together and his ability to kind of display his passing, his aggressiveness, his ability to score, his ability to isolate in one-on-one situations, everything. Okay, with that in mind, knowing how great he's been this year, MVP, LeBron, Harden, who who else is in that conversation for you, and who do you give it to? I mean, obviously LeBron, Harden, AD's in the conversation, Dame's in the conversation, at one point, I think DeMar was in the conversation based on you know his individual numbers and the success the Raptors were having. But I give it to Harden. I think, you know, look at the way he's played this season, how dominant the Rockets have been. 
they continue to change the game. You know, they, they signed P.J. Tucker, they signed uh, uh, Mbamute, they signed uh, Green. They kind of changed the dynamic of the NBA by putting all those shooters out there and then having that three and layup concept. You know, basically, they shoot the most threes ever in the history of the NBA. And the funniest part about all of this is that Chris Paul was the mid-range master. You know, he loved to shoot the pull-up. Shout out to the, shout out to the show, pull-up. And there was question marks on whether they could coexist <laughs> together. You know, people were kind of right. saying. You know, I was who, I was one of the idiots that questioned it, by the way. Yeah, so shout out to you for inspiring them to win 60-plus games this year. But there were arguments about who can play point guard, who's going to defer down the stretch. James just had arguably the greatest year of his career as the point guard. Now you're going to bring in arguably one of the best point guards to ever play. And James and the Rockets just basically said, look, man. This is what we do. And he's averaging, what, 31-9-5, something like that. Number one seed as of right now, which is locked in a week and a half before the season ends. And besides the fact that Russ averaged triple-double last year, you could argue that James could have won the MVP last year as well. You know what's interesting? You did not mention, and I don't know if you forgot or you omitted it purposely, you did not mention Russell in the MVP conversation this year. I didn't. I didn't because... Although, so you're, you're just like all the journalists out there. I am, essentially. Although he's playing extremely well, he's probably going to average a triple-double. He needs, as of Monday, he needs 12. He averaged 12 rebounds for the last four games, and he'll have a triple-double. The team added Paul George. They added Carmelo Anthony. So the expectations were higher this year. They were supposed to be That's you true. know, yeah. top three, top four in the West. And they could potentially still finish fourth in the West. But last year, Kevin Durant left, and they were supposed to be a bad team. They end up winning 48 games last year. He averages a 30-point triple-double. And it was just like you had to give it to him because Kevin Durant left. He was by himself. 30-point triple-double, makes it to the playoffs, and does something that hasn't been done since Oscar. You know, you mentioned going back to Houston before we move on with Harden and Paul. What I think, at least for me, what I didn't realize and what I should have realized is that at the worst-case scenario, you're always going to have at least one of those guys on the floor. So you're going to have either one of the best point guards of our generation on the floor or you're going to have Harden on the floor or both of them are going to be on the court at the same time. And the other part of it is that Chris wanted this. You know, he wanted the opportunity to play off the ball and relax a little bit. I mean, how you're able to play off Dame a lot, but you still have to handle the ball a lot. It's taxing, right, to always have to handle the ball. Yeah, it is taxing. It takes a lot out of you, you know, the wear and tear of, you know, 82-game season, getting hit by screens in the pick and roll and then having to come off screens on offense. Just having to go through all that for a long, long period of time can wear one. You know, I think Chris kind of looked at it as this: Hey, I can play with one of the best guards in the NBA, be in the Western Conference. Obviously, the fact that there's no state tax didn't hurt. You know, being in Texas with no state tax didn't <laughs> hurt. Absolutely, did not hurt him at all. And just kind of looking at where he's at in his career and where he wants to go, I think that he made a, he made a, a very good decision on. You know, trying to figure out, you know, his game, how he can evolve his game, obviously shooting a lot of mid-range shots to shooting, I don't know, six three-pointers a game or somewhere around there. And the load, understanding that once playoff time comes, he's going to be more fresh because the load wasn't as heavy during the regular season. You know, CJ, one thing that's going to be different about this show is some fun game segments. And one of them is going to be called Big Deal or Not a Big Deal. Basically, I'm going to ask you a question and you determine as a judge whether or not it is a big deal or not. And the first question for you is this. Hassan Whiteside, the Heat center, was fined after he was apparently not happy that he did not play the final 20 minutes of an overtime loss to the Nets. And he said, there are a lot of teams that could use a center. 
Big deal, not a big deal. For one, he's not lying. There are a lot of teams that could use a center. And I didn't know it was 20 minutes. Why I didn't play the last 20 minutes. That's crazy. I think this is a big deal. In OT. In OT. I think this is a big deal because uh, as of Monday, the Heat are in like seventh place in the Eastern Conference. So this Right, is a, they're in it. This sort is of. a playoff race. This could possibly become a distraction. Now the coach has to answer questions about Hassan Whiteside. Now... Everything is kind of being questioned about the organization. Like, is he happy? What's going to happen with his free agency process? Are they going to trade him, et cetera? But I think as a player, you have to be frustrated with not playing, you know, down the stretch of games if you feel like you can help your team. And let's not forget the fact that he's averaging 14, 12, two blocks in 25 minutes. I mean, that's unbelievable. Think about the per 48, which I should have pulled up and didn't. That's That's about as productive as you can get. Do you think he's... I mean, how how good of a player is he? You know, when we were talking about in our production meeting, you said that he really impacts the game on both ends, though. Is is that? Yeah, he's okay. dominant. You know, in the pick and roll, you have to respect the lob. He can catch the lob. He's got a little back to the basket game. Got a little jump hook. Can hit the mid range shot. Um, Block shots. Controls the paint area. It's it's floaters only, basically, with him in the lane. Floaters right. and quick and quick lays. I think his ability to do both those things in a limited amount of time gives him. You know, a valid argument. Like, why why aren't I playing at the end of games? Unless he can't make free throws, I don't see why he shouldn't be out there. But again, it's not my team. It, it is worth noting that he did say that he regretted how he handled it. He was frustrated. He's also making about $24 million a year, which is far and away the most. So there is a lot of pressure on him to perform. So we'll, we'll certainly monitor that. They will be a playoff team, and if they had, are going to have any success, it'll probably be because of him. All right, number two, Kevin Durant has been ejected five times this season, which is not only most in the NBA, CJ, but tied for the most since 2001. <laughs> Kevin Durant's newfound temper, big deal or not a big deal? Uh, I don't really think it's a big deal yet. Honestly, I know KD. He's one of the nicest guys out there. So to see that he's getting ejected from games is kind of surprising. Uh, I got to talk to him about giving away all that money, though. If he wants to donate money, he can surely give to the Boys and Girls Clubs and the C.J. McCollum Dream Centers that we're trying to provide for for young kids, uh, young underserved kids in the community. But with that being said, I just feel like maybe he's just tired of the regular season and wants to get ready for the playoffs right. and, and kind of get a break from these games. And uh, he's saying a lot of words that you're not supposed to say. <laughs> you know, a lot of trigger words that, that, sure. the refs, that the refs know. Yeah. And that we know as players that leads to technicals. And the last game he said about three or four in a row. And, you know, with that being said, goodbye. Well, he did say on the Simmons pod that you are the most underrated tough cover in the NBA. So <laughs> when you talk to him about it, you can say, listen, I appreciate the kind words. Just so you know, if you want to get involved in some charity work, <laughs> you can donate. You can just donate to mine. Exactly. Is that something you can tell Kevin? Exactly. No, I'm definitely going to tell him that. Look, next time you want to get thrown out of the game, just think about the C.J. McCollum Dream Centers that we're providing for kids along with C.J. McCollum Press Pass, and we can provide them with better resources. Like, we already have the coding <laughs> the coding class in place to where we're providing coding instructions and classes. Yeah. Now we can do more advanced things with that extra money KD's going to provide for us. Absolutely. Okay. All right, that's good to know. Number three, Jeff Hornacek said the triangle offense turned off free agents to the Knicks <laughs> last year. Is having a better offense a big deal or not a big deal to potential free agents? No, I think having a better offense is definitely a big deal. Free agents, especially depending on the play calling and scheme a team has in place, can can ultimately dictate the player. You look at OKC having to change their offense for Paul George a little bit, putting in pin downs, putting in flares, and allowing him to run pick and rolls to, and putting Russ off the ball. 
as a free agent, you have to look at the roster, you have to look at the coaching style, you have to look at the play calling and, sch- and schematic movements of the flow and figure out how you fit in. I think versatility plays a factor in that. And the triangle is a, a little outdated, honestly. I think that it's a easy little. to run the triangle. Yeah, very outdated. It's easy to run a triangle when you got Michael Jordan and Scotty or Shaq and Kobe. Or Kobe. Yeah. It's a lot harder to run a triangle in, in this new era of NBA where there's four men who can shoot threes and, and bring the ball up and there's centers who can guard one through five. There's just so much going on now in the NBA. You have to keep up with the, with the times or you get left behind. Also, part of what, and I don't call it the triangle that the Knicks run, I call it the rectangle. <laughs> I mean, the thing is so disjointed. It's so unorganized. I, I, you know, I'm in New York. I, I've probably seen 40, at least 40 Knicks games this year. They... They don't even run it right, but part of what running it right is, and you correct me if I'm wrong, you need to have a big man like a Shaq that's a really good passer. Like Shaq was a great passer. Isn't that a big part of it? Yeah, Shaq was a great passer, but he was also Shaq. <laughs> but right. spacing yeah. is okay. key. You you have to have a, a passing big man who can throw the backdoor pass, who can do those handoffs and, and kind of make split-second decisions. And I think that Shaq was obviously good sure. at that. He had shooters around him, and he had one of the best isolation players in the world to his right or to his left at all times, so that made it easier. But looking at the team dynamic of the Knicks, I'm not sure what offense is best for them because I don't know, honestly, but I've just never really been a fan of the triangle personally. All right, number four, Jeff Van Gundy. He does not know what a second cousin is, CJ. This is from the Houston Spurs game the other night. Take a listen to this clip. What does second cousins mean? <laughs> well, it's not. It's not. I, I can't. Go, I don't want to go into it. All right, I just. When people say it, I, I never know what they mean. Or what you're allowed to do <laughs> when you're a second cousin. <laughs> What are you talking about? <laughs> no, I'm just talking about. I don't know what a second cousin means. Oh my goodness! I am so grateful for this commercial right now. Wow. How about Mike wow. Breen? Mike Breen's just basically saying we can't go there. Give me the commercial. You know, I don't know. Here's the bottom line: Jeff Van Gundy, wildly unfamiliar with human relationships. CJ, is this a big deal or not a big deal? And then B, what is he talking about? What are you allowed to do? Is I mean, this kind come of on, big deal. give us some. This is kind of a big deal. And it I, is. I don't even it want is. to imagine what he's talking about when he says, what are you allowed to do? Okay. <laughs> I don't even want to imagine. I mean, come on, Jeff. Wow. Oh, my goodness. That was set on national TV and, you know, a primetime game. So, Oh, my goodness. Your kids heard that. Maybe we'll have Jeff on the show at some point, and I certainly can't get him. Maybe you can and just pitch him and say, Jeff, you got to clear this up. Oh, we're is, that, is that something going to, we can try? We're going to have to try to get him on the show for sure to have, to have him clear this up. We're going to have to also ask players and other guests what they think about that because that was that was interesting. Another game I'm excited about, CJ, is and one. Basically, I ask you three questions. You only have to answer two, meaning you complete the fifth on whichever one makes you the most uncomfortable. So, number one, is there an actual chance LeBron winds up going to the Philadelphia 76ers? Number two, where does Kawhi play next year? And number three, what team are you hoping Portland plays in the first round of the playoffs? So, you only have to answer two. All right, I'm scratching out number three right now because I don't really care who we play. Number one, LeBron to Philly. Ah, He's always calculated about his decision-making process, you know, going back to, you know, his youth Ben is his young guy. Ben's a member of Clutch Sports. 
So that also could play a factor. Philly's in the Eastern Conference. LeBron has been fond of the Eastern Conference throughout his career uh, on what, what seems to be his easy pass to the finals. I think it's a bigger possibility than people think. I'm not sure if they have the space financially for that. Obviously, they have a lot of guys on rookie deals right now. But they would need to get some more shooters in there if they do want to bring Braun in. Okay, so then if you're going to pass on three, number two, where does Kawhi play next year? Wow. I'm going right to the heavy hitters. Uh, Kawhi, I mean, this is a very sticky situation right now in San Antonio. I'm just going to put it like this. He's from California. Yeah, he's a SoCal guy. Yeah, he's from California. It's a lot of space oh, That's all out you there. got then. Okay. Lakers. It's a lot of space out there in California. Maybe the Lakers. A lot okay. of space. A lot of land out there. We're going to come back to this in the coming weeks. I'll give you a pass for now, but we will come back to this. A lot of cap space out there in California. CJ, you know what no other basketball podcast has? Wine reviews. And since you're a man of tremendous luxury and a self-proclaimed wine connoisseur, every week we're going to have you recommend your favorite glass of wine that you drank that week. It's going to be called CJ's Wine Cellar. Yeah, I appreciate the great introduction. I'm a ways away, some years off from taking that test. I'm not even close to being that polished. But the latest glass of wine I had was the uh, Walter Scott Pinot Noir, obviously, 2014 (laughs) from Freedom Hill. I had it right after the Memphis game. Um, I've been drinking that wine for about three or four years now. It's It's one of my favorites. And earlier in the week... I had the uh, Mark Bradford Pinot Noir 2014 from Domain Serene in Dundee Hills. It's also one of my favorites, and I found that on a recent trip to the Domain Serene Winery with my teammate Evan Turner. Shout out to my guy E.T. for looking out for the kid. Well, this is a Willamette Valley wine, am I right? This is. You are right. So you support the local grapes. You know it. You know it. Those are some of the best grapes All right, out so there in the world. If you had to give 1 to 10, 10 being the best... With the, both the Walter Scott and Mark Bradford. What do you think? I always say after three, they all taste the same. But in this <laughs> case, it all tastes good to me after a while. But I think the I think it was about eight and a half. I have to check my Vivino app and see what they rate it. Well, perfect is a 10. It's also known as the Kawhi Leonard. <laughs> see, this is why you need a professional like me on the podcast with you to bring it back like that. No, I appreciate that, man. That's why I'm here. Okay, buzzer beaters. This is a final segment of the podcast, basically giving you a look into CJ's life outside of the hardwood. So, CJ, you're a big fan of the show Billions, as am I. Can you please review the show right now? Yes, I love Billions. Shout out to Kelly Coin, you know, Trailblazer fan, man. Dollar Bill, (laughs) for those of you that actually watch the show, had to do that. Trying to get on the show, big big fan. I could be a I could be a silent investor. We could figure some things out, but that's neither here nor there. I love the show Billions. It is a television drama series. You know, it's got a lot of great acting in it. It comes on Showtime. Uh, it started in uh, January of 2016. It's just it's based on activities of a federal prosecutor uh, trying to prosecute you know, Axelrod uh, on his financial crimes that he's making. And there's obviously U.S. attorneys involved. There's a lot of legal battles between hedge funds and things of that nature. And it kind of gives you an inside scoop on what it's like to essentially be on Wall Street. It's a little fictitious, but very, very, very good, very entertaining. And if you don't watch it, you should. You should definitely watch it. See, Um, you say it's a little fictitious. 
I'm not caught up on the third season yet, but oh man, sometimes you watch it and you want to think it's fictitious, but then I don't know. It feels like very real, especially you mentioned Axelrod. It's a very very rich drama, but don't you feel as if you watch it the more and more and you think this is relatable to what's going on right now on Wall Street? Oh, there's definitely some parts in it that are real and accurate. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. I think they may stretch the truth a little bit, but you could see very, very contrasting similarities in real life in this in this show, Billions. What are you listening to now or your last song on the, uh, I don't want to say iPad, but on your yeah. Apple or whatever, whatever yeah. they call it? On the iPhone right now, shout out to the iPhone 10. I listen. Oh, okay. <laughs> iPhone 10. I'm still on the 7 or the 6, whatever the hell it is. What they say? Boss up, okay. man. Uh, <laughs> I'm a big Jay-Z fan, yeah, so I've been exactly. listening to Jay-Z and Nas a lot lately. The last song I listened to was off the Black Album, Jay-Z Encore. A great, great song. For those of you that haven't heard it, check it out. Black Album or Blueprint? Quickly. Better. Mm. Volume 1. Volume 1 Blueprint. Black Album. Ooh, surprising. Okay, audiobook right now. What are you listening to? Audiobook. I am listening to Eric Thomas. Very, very big fan of his. Started started watching him on YouTube, you know, some years back and inspirational videos and voiceovers. He has an audiobook called The Secret to Success. So uh, I've been checking that out uh, for a while now. You know, got some great recommendation, book recommendations I'll share with you guys each week. You know, we gotta give you something to to look forward to besides the wine and the NBA talk, you know, some other things that can keep you guys busy in your spare time. CJ, I do want to congratulate you and for all the nonsense that I give you, and I give you a lot of grief on certain things. <laughs> you did win the NBA Cares Community Service Award last week. So congratulations. And uh, I guess I'll let you take it out from here. I appreciate that, man. Just trying to continue to help the kids and share the sugar. As I said in my Instagram post, I try not to use my name in third person very often, but CJ loves the kids. (laughs) I want to shout out all our listeners out there. We appreciate you guys, you know, tuning in to pull up. Uh, Please subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows from. Please give us a review. It helps get the word out. Follow me on Instagram at 3J McCollum. Follow me on Twitter at CJ McCollum. Follow me on Snapchat if you want to see the food made by Chef B (laughs) at CJM313. Jordan, where can they follow you at? I am merely at Schultz underscore report, Mr. McCone. That is awesome. And lastly, for those of you out there that don't know, pull Pull up. up!